Welcome to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack, where the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we discuss the uncanny valley of relatability, learn the meaning of Auld Lang Syne, the history of karaoke, and of course debate the age-old question, can men and women truly be friends? Or will they secretly, always, just want to do a podcast together? Feeling a little um, excited about Fall in New York. And this movie is synonymous. This movie this movie is like fall on steroids. That scene of them walking um, with the, the leaves brown uh, is probably one of the most beautiful New York shots. Heather just threw up in her mouth, but I'm with you. I'm loving it. Or, or whatever. It doesn't even have to be New York. New York. Fall shots. It's a gorgeous... It's like a Thomas Kincaid version. <laughs> yes, it of is. New but York. it is. It is. Whatever. I love it. It's I a fall, it. it's a beautiful fall shot. It's a beautiful fall shot. And she's like dressed like Annie Hall because they're like we don't even care. She is dressed like Annie Hall, but it's a beautiful fall <laughs> Props shot. Props to her for being able to wear such a lofty turtleneck knit under a blazer. <laughs> yeah. Is it is yep. it time? I think Same so. Time. Is it time to whisk you away to a magical place 33 years ago? called New York City. <laughs> the magical land. It's not even New York. It's just Manhattan. A fantasy New York. A bougie little world of unchecked privilege, chunky nets, <laughs> unfair apartments. Have we started? <laughs> I didn't know. F- well, this okay. is the episode where we talk about When Harry Met Sally from 1989, directed by Rob Reiner and written by Nora Ephron and starring, of course... Um, I'm looking for my notes here. <laughs> if you have to um before the who's starring, then we're in trouble. Who is Harry again? <laughs> Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby. And, of course, the famous soundtrack by Harry Connick Jr. So, Heather, you're our fresh 2022 take. Joshua, probably like me, has seen it enough times that he's already decided how he feels about the movie. Maybe it changed, so I want to hear about your recent rewatches. What was the experience like? I'm excited to hear Heather's because I know hers is the freshest. I realized watching it, I haven't seen it in a long, long time. And spoiler, I'm still a fan. I still like it. But I did feel the years. A lot of years have passed. Yeah. I did feel a little differently. 1989 is a much longer time ago than I thought it was yeah. watching this. Yeah, I wasn't. For sure. I, I thought I actually. I thought I had seen it. I thought I'd even seen it a couple of times. Yeah, like me and Dirty Dancing. But it, yeah, exactly. But in watching it, I was kind of like, maybe I haven't actually seen this movie. A crime, a true crime. Definitely seen like you know a number of the iconic scenes. Sure. Yeah, everybody has. Yeah. My my first reaction to this movie was. Jesus Christ, it's boring. <laughs> and <laughs> it's so short. How can it be boring? Uh, it's because these days, these kids got to look at their phone when they watch a movie with talking. She needs action, music. I just couldn't. I, could, I honestly had, I honestly had a very hard time 
caring hmm. about the characters. And that's really all the movie is offering you is like yeah. caring about the characters and their witty repartee for uh, the duration of the movie. I, I think that it's 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 a very impressive, mm-hmm. uh, tight script where the dialogue does just like move super fast. No time is wasted. The craft yeah. of not belaboring anything mm-hmm. is, I think, really present and really noticeable. But I hate Harry and I hate <laughs> Sally. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> hate. <laughs> what? Oh my God. Hates. Here we go. <laughs> they're, just, they're just. My laptop is insufferable. short. There's sparks coming out of my laptop right now. <laughs> they are insufferable. Insufferable. But wow. I, I, I would strongly. I'm just letting Heather get it out. Get yeah. it out. Yeah. 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 A, a, a hang with. Uh, Carrie Fisher and Bruno, okay. who are extremely delightful, and I wish the whole movie was about them instead. Carrie Fisher is on fire in this movie. So is Bruno Kirby. You know Bruno, what's fucked up? They're both dead. They're both dead. Oh, and that, that's a bummer. I didn't realize Bruno Kirby was dead, too. I liked Bruno Kirby in this movie so much that I looked him up. I was like... Yeah, he's great. What else? Where can I get more Bruno City Kirby? Slickers? Yes, City Slickers is like is uh, City Young Clemenza and Godfather Two and City Slickers. That's about it, right? Yeah. Um, Bruno Kirby, Carrie Fisher, and Nora Ephron. But I, I love. I really liked that character. I think Jess is. It's an He's interesting the name that Nora Ephron gives uh, Bruno Kirby, Carrie Fisher's eventual love interest. Uh, his name is Jess in the movie. Yeah, I think Jess is a fantastic character. I think he's uh, he's like the the tender version of George Costanza, huh. and and I and I love him. I loved that character. I thought Carrie Fisher was a delight. I thought she was funny and uh, clever, and she plays yeah. this, yeah, she's great. you know, sort yeah. of sort of um, unself conscious character re- who makes terrible mistakes over and over she, in a really affecting way. And she only has like five scenes. She has like five scenes, and she just lights it up. Yeah, but she just she steals every one of them. When she says, "I'll yeah. never love that coffee table," that she like. Totally. nails the end of the scene <laughs> yeah, yeah yes. that is a laugh out loud line yeah when yeah. she dog when yeah. she dog ears when yeah. she's like married yeah. and dog ears the rolodex of single men yeah amazing really like there's some really nice touches right um but but yeah this is a this is a movie that's like uh it's a, a, talk, a talky thing between harry and sally and if you don't like harry and sally and you don't care what happens to them it's kind of hard to care about so you wish it was when yeah. when bruno met Princess Leia. <laughs> I would be so into when uh, ten- tender George Costanza meets Princess Leia. Yes, I would. You know, everyone says this launched the modern rom-com obviously there was rom-coms before this but this was the modern right. one and then i was like did just just launch the 90s <laughs> because it's just chatty referential seinfeldian humor yes and he is getting to heather's point 
a, a neurotic, selfish New Yorker. I guess Woody Allen kind of owns that corner of the world. But Seinfeld is just about four selfish people. What's funny there is they don't care about emotions in the end at all. Seinfeld comes out the exact same month that yeah. this movie is released. And, and, and guess I who's the production company? Rob Reiner's. Castle Rock Entertainment. Mind-blowing. So it's a thing. As I was watching it, I was before I had put those things together, I, I was thinking about Seinfeld a lot while I was watching it because I was like, God, this is really like in that same very very small ecosystem a lot and i think it speaks the man and woman friends yeah and and episode and, remember when they're like can we have sex and be friends and that was like everyone loved Jesus, talking even about the that. way they dress the neighborhoods they live in and i think it just speaks to like how zeitgeist it was yeah there was something going on where people were sort of ready for this thing where people were going to chat about Really small things in grandiose ways. The Random House Dictionary says, in slang, this movie invented the term high maintenance. Oh, Oh, I wondered about that because I don't... I find that hard to believe. I I do not remember ever hearing that before this movie or whatever as a young person. It might be high maintenance, low maintenance. It might be true. Hats off to Nora Ephron if that's true. Um, Because it, it, it it is... destructive taxonomy but a useful one (laughs) Um, pretty impressive you can make up slang Nora Ephron I think that for me this is the part of the movie that I'm reluctant to say it hasn't aged well but I definitely as I was watching it did not feel as impressed with the dialogue and the characters as I did a long time ago Uh, so so whatever so I was thinking about that more and I was like okay well how do movies age you know like what what are these what are these how's that work because I watch movies from the 30s or something that I'm like oh my god I love this dialogue the dialogue maybe stilted maybe misogynist weird all these different things and I'm like moved by it I think there's a space a middle space when a movie is like an old movie quote unquote but is also not old enough that it's that it's um like old fashioned or cute or quaint or whatever it's in an uncanny valley of yeah. of relatability yes that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And that's how I felt about this a little bit this time. I think when I rewatch this movie 20 years from now, I will not feel that anymore. Yeah. I think I will be removed enough. Because, yeah, it'll be in a new context. From the echoes of Seinfeld and everything and, like, hearing how, like, this movie inspired so much inane, dumb conversation about stuff like, you know, can men and women have sex? That that I, I can't quite hear how fresh and cool that was at the time, but I think after a little bit of time i will just enjoy it as like a fun old movie Mm -hmm. i buy that well i i remember thinking when i was younger that it was when they the way they talk about casablanca and discuss that i remember thinking that's how cool adults talk about movies that was like so funny and she's like well you would be the first lady of czechoslovakia and they're arguing about the ending and then it's yeah. amazing that that just became, I mean, we have this podcast now that just became what yeah. you do with every bit of culture. But I remember thinking right. that was so interesting and cool and like smart to like view a movie through that lens and argue about it and like kind of own it yourself and talk about it. And I mean, it, uh, this movie feels like a gateway to the nineties for me. Cause then we have Pulp Fiction is like Hitmen doing this. And obviously Seinfeld takes over and then Seinfeld launches, you know, the, the end of the argument is friends and just hotter, younger people with, less funny lines doing it and then eventually it peters out and we go into the 2000s kind of thing but this felt and i'm sure you know you argue that woody allen was owning this place but he wasn't doing it it was like a different style of humor and it wasn't as pop culture it was definitely a different style as it was kind of thing i feel 
But I can I was understanding why this is like the Rosetta Stone of the modern rom com when I was watching it. For sure. The radio and the telephone and the movies that we know may just be passing fancies and in time may go. But no my this was a gateway to the 90s for you rewatching it. For me, it's a gateway to my young adulthood. Like, I'm rewatching it, and what I keep seeing is, or what I keep remembering is how absolutely convinced I was that Meg Ryan was the ideal uh, <laughs> female that, that, that we're all trying to find. And that, like, if I could just be as, like, oh, I, if I could just be Heather's as, like, laughing. I still love her. And then, and then, and then things like with Billy Crystal's, like, persistence, um, on the phone when he keeps, when he keeps calling her. And, like, I guess, you know, we could definitely read that as stalking and bothering her now. Uh, that to me, that at the time that that signaled that, like, when you discover that you love someone, that, you have to uh, pursue that, and it sounds problematic even as I'm saying that. But as, as yeah, but that's a very nice. As I watch, that's, as I watch, that's a thing as I was rewatching watch, it, I remember being a young person seeing this movie and feeling very, very strongly that these were archetypes that that were not fiction but actually aspirational. That like I wanted to be in a a relationship like this and i wanted to be people like this and i wanted to know people like this oh the whole life is it's like it's an aspiration for what you for what new york could be yeah as a young person aspirational i think is the word i can fall in love with the with sally's hair and with sally's hair um and with sally's outfits easily <laughs> that part's easy it's sally's personality that i would have a hard time falling in love with hmm. you don't find her cute no, not at all. I find not at I all. find her vapid and insipid. <laughs> okay. I mean, what is the most insightful thing that Sally says? What is the smartest or like most observant thing that comes out of that character's mouth? The way that she challenges him throughout is is um pretty interesting. Meaning like pushing back on his stupid Yeah, she pushes back. She listens to his bullshit and she lets him like walk like uh, to the edge of the pier and then she's just like ah that's stupid i disagree mm -hmm. with that i don't know i enjoyed that yeah and she says at one point she calls him like you're actually the angel of death <laughs> and she th and she rolls her eyes like nora Ephron has a whole thing about people who think if they think about death they're deep and she was like that's what i was doing with harry actually kind you're of right thing. that in the car in the early part of the drive from chicago to new york which she's like that doesn't mean you're deep or anything and she's like i hope you don't think that means yeah. you're deep I'd, actually that is probably the the line that i've found most interesting yeah. in the character. She's right. It, it doesn't yeah. make him deep. And she's also right that he thinks yes. it does. And she tells him like, you have to find a way of not expressing yourself with every feeling you have, every moment you have. I think maybe her delivery is a little quirky. Sure. Of course it is. Oh, she calls him a human affront to all women. Maybe she's being too cute about it, but she, or she says she fucked everyone in New York already. There's no one left. Like she gives it to him, which is why I don't know. I, I can see what you mean when she kind of does the dopey face thing and blinky thing and cute thing. Yeah. But I think, I think what she's saying though is like, I felt like it felt like a real character because that's just kind of like how she is. But her lines I thought were good. At least Harry has some theories about 
human behavior and being alive. <laughs> well, he definitely yeah. has fucking theories. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even yeah. get her own theories. It's All she does is react to his theories yeah. and what he says and thinks. Let me defend not having a bunch of bullshit theories. I think it's okay. <laughs> she hangs out with us, dude. She likes bullshit theories. Like, <laughs> and not full of bullshit theories and instead just listens to other bullshit theories and just occasionally says, yeah, that's bullshit. You know what? Maybe we need more people like that. Joshua heard. <laughs> Point taken. We're in a world of Harry's right now. <laughs> Hi, I'm home right now. I'll call you right back. If you're there, please pick up the phone. I really want to talk to you. The fact that you're not answering leads me to believe you're either A, not at home, B, home but don't want to talk to me, or C, home, desperately want to talk to me, but trapped under something heavy. So this soundtrack was a huge soundtrack. It launched, it went double platinum. It won a Grammy. It launched Harry Connick Jr.'s um, career. And I would argue it launched the rom-con soundtrack in the in the um, big soundtrack era. And I know as critics have talked about, you open with literally a black screen with the white type and the Gershwin or old jazzy standard and shots in New York and you're ripping off Woody Allen. So obviously he has credit in doing this move. And he even has his famous opening of Manhattan, the movie when he, when he has Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin playing. But Harry Met Sally makes it packageable and sellable because no one was running out and buying um, Woody Allen soundtracks, really. You maybe thought of those old songs and you thought they were cool. And I think the way they discussed Casablanca and watch an old romantic movie, you can argue they could have been watching a different classic old movie, maybe. That one works really well. That's how the songs operate in this. And the songs are supposed to create this vibe. And if you remember the 90s, then Gap was doing swing commercials and big band music and old jazz standards were cool. And that kind of old-fashioned style was kind of brought back. And all of a sudden, you have, like I think, Sleepless in Seattle, that soundtrack was a crazy popular huge seller because the movie was, but what they did was they did that and then they had Celine Dion cover a standard and put that on it. And it develops this soundtrack where you can probably replace a bunch of old jazz standards in a lot of scenes because it's a movie about talking. There's no action in it, right? There's no car chases. There's no, it's a chased movie. As much as they talk about sex, there's no like crazy sex scenes. So there's no places to put music. So all you can do is set the mood and put up the wallpaper and be like, we like old fashioned Hollywood. We're like elite intellectuals in the Upper West Side who may listen to these old jazz standards and it's about romance and the good things in life. And you can, all you can do is put them in little montages between each scene, I guess, to punctuate that tone. I think it's important to say when you talk about the soundtrack being a success, what we're talking about is an album that was made by Harry Connick Jr. Missed the Saturday dance. Heard they crowded the floor. Who was a young jazz musician who covered a bunch of standards that appear in this movie. And the soundtrack that was a success is not yes. the songs by Gershwin and 
you know, whoever, Louis Armstrong and people like that that are in the movie. But it's actually this covers album by this young, cool, new guy, Harry Connick Jr. And so when when we talk about the soundtrack, I think it's an, it's it's definitely worth noting that in this case, it's some weird other thing than we've had in any other movie before. The soundtrack is not the songs that are in the movie. Well, it is. But it, it is it is not the songs that we hear in the movie. It is Harry Connick Jr.'s version yeah. of the songs that are in the movie. No, he bookends it. He gets the bookend. I do agree with you that there's a line between this and the, the big swingers craze and stuff that happens in the 90s. Um, I think that Harry Connick Jr. becoming popular is, is a big part of all of that. But I don't think that's the same thing as a movie having old Gershwin songs. That's the Woody Allen thing. That's that's the thing that's happened before. Somebody made some choice with this, which is to get this new, hip, young guy to do all these covers. And he does them in a way that's pretty interesting. I mean, they're, they, they yeah. it's not just him doing note for note the standards. No. He's got his own spin on them. They're very jazzy. There's a lot of cool piano stuff going on. When I heard it, um, I thought it was the coolest shit ever. I mean, I was like younger and I was like, man, that's, that's how you want to be. This good looking guy who seems like really cool and knows all these songs and can just like jam them on a piano. That seemed like kind of a life goal to me as a young person. <laughs> anyway, my point being that this is clearly a whole different beast, and I think we need to deal with that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, and I can't find one, does another soundtrack exist where all the songs in the movies are the originals, except three or four, and then the soundtrack itself are the covers of originals that aren't in the movie? Harry Connick Jr. gets... Um, it had to be you opens the movie and I think closes it again. And he's only in there like maybe two more times sprinkled in. And then in the big scene, the grand finale climax, when Billy Crystal is running to proclaim his love, cause it's the end of a romantic comedy. It's Sinatra's. It had to be you. Mm. And Harry Connick Jr. Doesn't even get the big climactic scene. Sinatra gets it. And so it's really funny where I'm like, has there ever been a soundtrack where the songs are, you know, beginning and end credits, I mean, in the end. Um, and then the rest of the movie is all the old standards. And to explain old standards, it's Gershwin, Duke Ellington. You've heard a lot of these songs before. They're the old jazz classics. Um, but yeah, I agree, Joshua. That's a really weird it's very weird. Thing, and I'm, I'm trying to think of another movie. That's it's very weird. I can't think of another soundtrack like that. Yeah. I was trying to figure out why that happened and how it happened. It's very smart. I'll tell you that. I mean, the fact that they no no one would have bought this this soundtrack. I mean, we talk about where we're in the middle, we're in the early years of the big soundtrack era here. Yeah, like maybe later on. Somebody, and I guess Rob Reiner is apparently credited with making this call ultimately. But I don't know if he also the fact that he had a production company, if he also knew about music production and stuff. Somebody had the realization that like if we just put out a soundtrack of George Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart songs. Um, you know, some people that saw the movie and liked the movie are going to buy it. But if we do it this other way... Yeah, then it'll be huge. It was huge. So somebody because had a really good idea. The old song thing does work into the 90s. There's a bunch of rom-coms and all they are is just like old mixtapes of like, you have to put one Louis Armstrong song on, one Duke Ellington song. And it's kind of like this recipe. 
Jimmy Durante. You can throw in an old musical or Broadway hit, but it has to be these kind of like classic, sentimental, nostalgic, schmaltzy, old Hollywood. I guess maybe we're working with like 20s, 30s, and 40s standards. Which is how the music is mostly used in the movie. Yeah. Do you think that people listened to this soundtrack by themselves and were like, God, I just love this music so much. I love Harry Connick Jr. I love these songs. Yes. Or do you think that yes, they I, listened I know to those this people. and bought this the way that you might stock a pantry? It's like, I know that I'll be, oh, I'll always be able to make a decent dinner if I have these like five good ingredients on the shelf. That's kind of how I imagine this soundtrack working is that people were like, I'll always be able to have a few friends over and put on some light music. Everybody enjoyed. No, it was, it was novel. It was novel that he was covering these songs. If it had just been the actual Gershwin songs and all those things, I completely would agree with you. I remember where I was when I heard this soundtrack for the first time. I remember the car I was in. Holy shit. I mean, yeah, like it was, it was <laughs> something to hear like a younger person doing a take on this stuff. It sounded cool it sounded new the fact that three four years later we've got the swinger boom i i think that there was a thing happening yeah. where it was like Maybe. oh shit this is new this is cool like harry connick jr was super handsome he, he was like super handsome mm. i mean he got a victoria's secret model not unlike john mellencamp yeah. <laughs> joe joe goodacre so like yeah like it, it felt like this is really like cool this is truly cool not like in like oh frank sinatra was cool or George Gershwin music Harry was Jr. cool. Like is this is cool. literally yeah. cool right yeah. now. Cool. And like, I remember that it felt very impactful. Maybe it's just a form of, maybe I'm just like a total dilettante. Maybe I'm just like low brow to the core because I find this music almost unlistenable. Oh God. I love it. <laughs> the wait, the originals or Harry Connick Jr. Uh, Harry Connick Jr. But oh, okay. I thought you meant the originals. Also, but, also kind of the originals too. Harry Connick Jr. To me, I'm like, why don't I, I'd rather just listen to the originals. Than I mean, the originals are like, I reckon, I recognize them as like, you know, national treasures. I know that like, I know that they need to be in the library of Congress. I know that they should probably be on some like Voyager disc that gets sent into space or whatever, but that doesn't mean that I have any desire to listen. But to I it. don't think they're as highbrow as you think they are. Well, no, of course they're not, but they're treated that way by the culture now you know because they're the ones who made it through the i guess the decades whatever i i really enjoyed the harry connick jr soundtrack when i was listening to it again the last week or so i i i thought it was it was a still a fun take on these songs that in the movie seemed very state uh not yeah i don't care i didn't care in the movie I, even when I found myself kind of humming along to him, I was like, the music was still not entering beyond like, oh god, uh, the, just the surface. Yeah. But when I listened to the soundtrack, I was like, ah, it's fun. It's fun. Stomping at the Savoy, when I listened to that on the Harry Connick album, I was like, this is kind of fun. Yeah, I liked it it's too. Got, it's I, got a I little bit of fun. tempo to it. Yeah. I don't know. It just all sounds like elevator music. To me. I mean, now, in, in hindsight, ultimately, I did not stick with Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> I did not continue to buy his records. Like, I Did you have uh, Blue Light, Red Light or whatever? I remember my sister had... My older sister was a big Harry Connick Jr. fan. That's how I know all this. No, but I bought the next one, which is... The next one was like called We Are In Love or something, and I played the shit out of that. 
<laughs> wow. But, you know, very quickly, I did not keep going with it. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't have a bunch of other jazz standards records. I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not that into it either. I'm just saying that, like, I think I got some jazz standards records. Guys. I'm sure you do. I think that you have you're you have, uh, uh, I don't know, more respect or, or more. You get more pleasure out of these songs than than I do. I, I can explain why. Go for it. If you'd like. It's because I grew up, half my family's from Jersey, half my family is from Brooklyn. And the working class Brooklyn people in my family who lived in, you know, three floor walk-ups, and that's who I hung out with all the time. I, in Brooklyn, we'd go do holidays there. New York people, this is just my um, take, the old New York people, my grandmother, my great uncle, they were always humming or singing one of these songs. And I don't know... You know, and if it was, it was either a Broadway song or, you know, they were just always humming or singing all of these songs. And I just grew up knowing them. And I wonder if it was a New York thing because you're closer to Broadway and the music and the theater, or it was just of the time. And if you were of that generation, but someone was always humming or tapping, or my grandmother was obsessed with Frank Sinatra and he, you know, with these jazz standards are covered by everyone. And she had a picture of Frank Sinatra up on her wall and she always listened to him. So when I hear like, um, let's call the whole thing off or um, autumn in New York or don't get around much anymore or it had to be you. It had to be you. I just know those songs. And I think for me, that's why when I hear them, it's just like, the comforting weird shit you grew up on but like what i mean everybody knows those songs right and i also know i oh got i feel like they're such a part of my youth well yeah but i mean yeah that's that's why they're standards i mean like everybody i don't know i don't know if, if maybe you guys grew up like that too well i uh, know you're right that it you you probably did have a closer relationship to them because of location and you know I'm sure that the Italians like Frank Sinatra more than the Texans do. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean I'm not being facetious. Yeah, and no, no, I, I no, really believe. Yeah, it's true. Italian Americans in New York fucking love Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, Joshua. <laughs> Maybe more than people in Texas. Yeah. Some others I've seen might never be me. Do you want me to do the Rob Reiner run? I don't even know what that means. A list of movies Rob Reiner made? Yeah, and his effect on our youth. He had no effect on my youth. I don't have any <laughs> feelings about these movies. It's an all-time run. It's an all-time run. Back to back to back to back to oh, back. Oh, let's see. Okay, okay. This is good. Let's see. I like this. So, I, I've, me and Joshua have discussed this before. That if you're of a certain age, you come to a realization later in life that... Rob Reiner went on a movie run where he directed a bunch of movies. And I would say between 1986 and 1992, that just became a big part of movie life as a kid or teenager, or maybe, maybe adult. Heather says she's not affected by any of these, but maybe let's, let's check. I don't know. Well, maybe I, maybe I was, I don't I couldn't name I couldn't name more than two Rob that's, Reiner movies. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He he hasn't really lasted in the sense of like people don't talk about him as like a great quote unquote director or whatever because of a lot of reasons. But this run was just unending. All right. So t tell me. Tell me what they are. 
right. So the early one, he kicks it off, and I'm not going to go through them all, but he kicks it off with This Is Spinal Tap in 1984. That puts him on the map. Yeah. makes him cool because he's the dude who made This Is Spinal Tap with all those dudes. He makes a couple other movies, but then the big one, 1986. Look at this run. 1986, Stand By Me. 1987, The Princess Bride. 1989, When Harry Met Sally. 1990, Misery. 1992, A Few Good Men. I do like Misery quite a bit. I think it's a great movie. And Stand By Me is fine. Like, you can't, you can't, like, argue with it. It's affecting. I love Stand By Me. That was, that was huge for me as a kid. That last line, I'll cry right now. I, you guys know how I feel about the Princess Bride. Wait, and you don't like Princess Bride and Joshua does? Yeah. Is that? I fucking hate it. Yeah, you're wrong about that. But Illegal. Okay. I, Illegal. I <laughs> truly hate that movie. Yeah, that's nonsense. <laughs> and then what do you think about, I actually watched A Few Good Men recently and thought it was pretty I good. haven't seen it in a long time. It's I just did, like a law, a law drama. It's like the good prototype one. I think one. That, that I picked up some of it uh, the last time I watched it, I got it finally. I didn't like it when it first came out because I think I was not in the headspace for it. But then I, I saw it later and realized that he was he's making a classic old time movie. It's yeah, supposed to be Aaron like an old it. classic, like, uh, like Twelve Angry Men you know, kind of movie, forties uh, or fifties movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of has a stiltedness to it that I think is part of the design that I appreciated more later on. Anyway, I think a lot of people, when you string together all the Rob Reiner movies, they're like, weird, he made all that. Especially because they're they're kind of different because he does a horror movie, a law drama, a rom-com, a fantasy, a kid movie. Oh, yeah, they're definitely not... Um, he's not like treading the same ground over and over at all. Yeah, but I mean, that's yeah. a run. That's... That is a hell of a, it's a run. run. It's a good run. <laughs> it's a hell of, hell hell of a run. run, Rob. But people joke that he became so rich because his production company um, did Seinfeld and he owned the rights to it that he just, his bank account exploded and he was so rich that he couldn't make a good movie again. That's the joke because he was just swimming in it. And his production company, they put out like Shawshank Redemption. It's and harder stuff. for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle. Yes. <laughs> While I love that quote, I don't think it applies here. He's Carl Reiner's son. He's grown up in show business. He's like as, as, as he's as, to him he's, he's like Nora Ephron he's a self-made man yeah it's true he's a son it's true it's a showbiz guy yeah there's a there's a uh, trend here only Meg Ryan made it on her own I'm just saying that like to him those but those, Carl Reiner never had like billions of dollars that measuring success in those terms would be would would be very passe to him he's he's well beyond that yeah he grew up where you measure success by being funny by doing work yeah. By being good. Carl Reiner made the jerk. I mean, he must have been like I love Carl Reiner. Fifteen well, I guess he was probably like twenty years old or something. I mean, can you imagine your dad makes the jerk when you're like twenty and you've been meathead on yeah. all in the family? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you're like, yeah. okay, dad, I'm gonna try to do that. No, it's true, because your dad might make the Dick Van Dyke show and you're like, Okay, that's a dad show to make, but then he does the jerk and then you're like, Dad's cool. I do sort of feel sorry for, for sure. people whose parents were geniuses. Oh, you also have Carrie Fisher too, as another yep. uh, another another self-made uh, woman, Hollywood child. <laughs> They're small little world, but they all did good work. That's the thing; they were all good. Carrie Fisher wrote good books. Yeah, she was good in things like 
Rob Reiner made good movies. Penny Marshall made yeah. a bunch of good movies. Like they're all really well. Maybe they were the cool kid good. club. Rob Reiner hang out with the cool Hollywood kids. Nepotism has always been a part of Hollywood. You know, it, we we make a big deal about when it's yeah, like Nora embarrassing for the people involved in it. Like oh, you know, some Will Smith kid or something that is getting to like green light a television show or something, which is just hilarious to everybody. But in reality, it's like oh, you know, when when you grow up in an industry. I think you probably do get sort of comfortable with like that world and that space in a way that if you're if you've been raised well and you're smart and you're not on drugs and all these other things, then, you know, hey, you probably have an opportunity to do something. Hey, Carrie Fisher did it and she was she was on drugs. Well, she was on <laughs> drugs and she still did it. You're right. But you know, I think also when you don't have this desperate striving to be famous. Yes, that's yeah. I feel like Carrie Fisher was always like, ah, I'll just work in the family business. Yeah. She her career is kind of so strange and random. I feel like she's like, ah, I'll just use the leverage they have and yeah. work at the family deli. So my pick, I'm going straight for the jazz standard jugular here with the most obvious, biggest, this style of rom-com music ever. And talking about let's call the whole thing off the harry connick one and it was written by george gershwin everyone knows this song it's the tomato and tomato song and i was thinking about the harry connick one and then in the movie they use um the kind of classic one you always hear which is uh louis armstrong and ella fitzgerald and which i learned last night my dog gets the funniest face when i sing it do you do the Louis Armstrong voice? <laughs> you say Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like suddenly my dog's like, what? And I'm like, were you owned by Louis Armstrong at one point? What is it? It's because you're, you're growling when you sing. I guess so, yeah. Pizzato. Um, Excuse me. Anyway, it's the first song where you see a shot of New York. It's it's after the flashback scene um, when they're driving from Chicago and it's the late 70s. And then she says something like well that's a shame because you were the only person i knew in new york and then it cuts yeah. to the city skyline and it's like here's your city skyline here's new york here's your jazz standard here's louis armstrong and ella fitzgerald and this is going to be the tone of this movie and we're doing this thing and you're vibing with it and you're falling in love you say either i say either you say neither and i say neither either so let's say, let's call the whole thing. It was a Gershwin song. It came out. It's first came out in 1937 in the film, shall we dance? And it was a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers thing. And they sing it and then do a duet on roller skates. And I'm not a modern musical guy. I never watched La La Land. I never will, but old musicals from the thirties and forties. It's delightful. You should look up them doing it. And also, do you guys know the ginger, the fake ginger Rogers quote? I don't know. There's this famous quote where she said, I just did everything he did, but but backwards, but but backwards and And there's backwards and in heels and there's backwards and on roller skates. I've heard that too, because of this scene and you hear the high heel ones as well. She actually never said that because he would have fired her. She never said it. And in a book she wrote, she claimed she never said it. It's attributed (laughs) to her. But the reason it caught fire was because at the 1988 Democratic Convention, Ann Richards, <laughs> you know I'm going there, Heather. 
Wait, if we're going to talk about Ann Richards, let's show some respect, Heather. Heather just knows this is very on brand for me. Ann Richards gives this speech before she becomes governor that probably makes her become governor, where she quotes that. And apparently people in the Democratic Party were like, here's our ticket to winning the next election and the first woman president. It's Ann Richards, who then goes on to become the governor of Texas. Um, Last last Democrat and last woman they've ever had. One Um, term, because then she ran into Karl Rove. And he absolutely cut her legs off to win that next election. Well, you know how, you know, the big yeah. issue they beat her on. Right. Yeah. She yeah. lost against George Bush because crime yeah. was skyrocketing. Spoiler. It was not. It was not skyrocketing. They were just doing that. And, and they were saying she's yeah. soft on crime and the numbers are up and they weren't even up and it worked because. Hey, I'm, I was, I was a Texas boy coming, coming of age at that time. <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's a problem. Were you in love with Ann Richards? Well, I was. I was probably a Republican at the time, so probably not. But uh, mm. she was a formidable and and great person. And I certainly was not a fan of the person she beat the first time, Bill Clements, who said that uh, that women who are being raped should just lay the, lay back and enjoy it. So Jesus you know, you definitely Christ. was not a fan of that dude. But she got she got kneecapped. It was brutal. And you know, whatever. Go watch the documentaries and 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 watch what Karl Rove does to people. It's horrible. So, are you saying let's let's call the whole thing off? <laughs> anyway, this song is a contagious song. Everyone knows it. It's got the setup, the easy template. You say tomato, I say tomato. My kid thinks it's funny. It gets stuck in your head. Can I ask you though, two of them, of what you guys actually say? I know you don't say tomato. Where do you stand on? And this is from the lyrics: vanilla with an e or vanilla with Wait, an i. I can't hear the difference. You say vanilla, I say vanilla. Van- it's in the song. Say vanilla and we'll decide for you. Vanilla. Vanilla. Okay, there's no I, no vanilla I people. Wait, what? Okay, just checking. Say I don't even hear what you're two saying. Two different vanillas, Matt. I'm reading the lyrics and quoting yeah. them saying. Okay, but what are the different versions? You say vanilla, I say vanilla. I can't even hear the vanilla. difference in what you're doing. Nil. Now. Oh, Joshua, now? Joshua. It's one, of those, it's one of those short E, short I things where they get all worked up about the two being different sounds. Vanilla? Oh, Vanilla. Hey, it was enough for George Gershwin to write about Apparently, it. I, I looked up the song a little bit. Apparently, it's a big, it's a big like, the, the key is that it's, like, American versus British, apparently, right? Yeah, it just seems like a class thing. The Oyster versus Erster, yeah. that's, like, New Orleans and Brooklyn, people used to say Erster. Pajamas, pajamas, you still hear that one. Yeah, so the idea was that, that like, like, the British version was the thing that Americans still said uh-huh. that was, like, fancy. Yeah. And in the setup, it's a class thing where right. the fancy people still I use saw the old some British English. Kind of funny comedy version uh, of of a British guy who's singing it, and he's just going. I well, I don't know what the British version would be uh, of tomato and tomato. Would it be tomato? Sure. So he's so. reading the lyric. He's singing it, and he's like, "You say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, <laughs> I say potato." And the whole song is just him saying both ones. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I don't say potato or potato. I don't say tomato or tomato. What do you say? Ooh, what do you say? Potatoes and tomatoes. Oh my god! Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> That's. I feel like a tomato. That's people in my family. You'd call like a woman. Uh, what? Where's this going? Who's a real? Uh, how do you say? Like, wow, you she's that? a real she's, tomato. That that, that, yeah, that bride's got a lot of tomato. <laughs> I have I have a uncle on my aunt's side, like through marriage, and he was a fireman, and he'd come to family functions and always bring home these like wild Brooklyn babes. 
as his dates and we used to call him Timmy's Tomatoes because that was his name. <laughs> wow. And it was, he was like a cool 80s dude and there'd be this woman with like big 80s hair and makeup. It looked like they were from Budweiser commercials and he was like fireman dude and we'd be like Timmy's Tomatoes. You say Timmy's Tomatoes, <laughs> I say Timmy's Prostitutes. <laughs> you say laughter and I say laughter. You say after and I say after. When you look into this movie and how it's made, it's Nora Ephron translating Rob Reiner. We should give her a due and talk about her a little bit. She was, um, you know, Rose, her parents actually were screenwriters. Do you know they wrote a desk set that like late era Hepburn and Tracy movie? Mm. A real self-made woman. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she, she was in the typing pool at Newsweek and wrote a funny piece for the nation. And the New York Post is like, if you can write fake uh, editorials like we write why don't you just actually write them for real for us but then she became a reporter for a while like a beat reporter and she was like reporting on like murders and deaths and stuff rose up to become a magazine writer and then when she hit esquire i feel like that's really where her voice came in and then she started writing about culture and feminism and interviewing people and then she became the master of the takedown piece wow she is married to bernstein of woodward and bernstein and he's like you know toast to the town cool guy and then he cheats on her ah. she kicks him out she ends up with two kids living with her editor and she writes a novel about it basically demoting him from hero to like like two bit Laos who cheated on her. The book becomes a bestseller and then a movie with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson called Heartburn, oh, yeah. directed by Mike Nichols, who Mike Nichols was, they were friends. And I feel like that's like the best revenge ever you can get on someone <laughs> who cheats on you. When you get Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson in a movie portraying it. And then she actually says like she wanted to be a writer and she wanted to be Dorothy Parker, but the movie thing happened and you're probably right. There's probably connections to her parents somewhere in the underlying story that we're not seeing, but she said it was a means to end and make some quick cash and make money after a divorce and people liked it. And then Rob Reiner in like the mid eighties in 84, 85 was like, I have this movie I want to make. You should write it. It's about a lawyer because she had written Silkwood and she's like, it was so boring and dumb. I didn't want to do it. And then Rob Reiner and his producer just started telling all their weird single men stories to her. Cause Rob Reiner was divorced from Penny Marshall. Let's, Let's like name yes. that. Yes. Carrie Fisher's I'm, best friend. It's also so funny because Penny Marshall and Rob Reiner are such similar directors and make similar yes. movies. They represent a certain type of movie for sure. I like them both yeah. as like. And very good. Very good. Like their movies are The very good. mainstream, feel good, Americana. Yeah. Penny Marshall, A League of Their Own, big. Awakenings. But anyway, so they decide, oh, maybe let's make a relationship about men and women. And can men win and be friends? Obviously, that was exciting. So as a true reporter, Nora Ephron just interviews the shit out of Rob Reiner. And she was like... Because he was going through that divorce. Yeah. And he was out there and dating. And she just writes down everything. And he's depressed. And he thinks being depressed makes him... Um, deep <laughs> him and Billy Crystal were actual friends and they used to call each other on the phone and watch the same TV channel together. Cause they were both like, he was like the depressed divorce guy and Billy Crystal was his friend. She put that in there and she's grilling him. And she said she was appalled, but not surprised. And he said, I don't care. you like, you got to put it in there. And he was like, this movie's not going to work unless we re reveal the deep, ugly truths. And the thing about men wanting to leave between 30 seconds and forever is your problem. That was like a Rob Reiner thing. He told her and she was like, ugh. and then she said she was Sally because she's always like, I'm great. Everything's fine. I'm in control. And when she's not, so she went with that. I do think that you can see uh, that the writer here sees themselves in Sally. Because 
they're hard on Sally. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, Sally's the journalist stand then and she is harder on Sally then. Uh, Rob Reiner was like, you've got all these things that I've given you. You never gave me enough of what women do. Like when Carrie Fisher sends flowers to herself to try to make her boyfriend jealous, that's a real story. And that's the infamous when um, Nora Ephron is like, sometimes women fake orgasms. Right. And apparently Rob Reiner did not believe her. And then he was like, oh my God, that has to be in the movie. And he was blown away by it. And he's like, and Harry can't believe it in the movie either. And so I guess that's how non-communicative people were in the 80s about this shit the reason it's the it's the it's the uh, birth of the modern rom-com if you will is because that's the sort of thing that people didn't talk about in the previous 50 years of rom-coms or whatever yeah but a couple years later the the best seinfeld episode ever is the contest that was just unimaginable that people were talking about a masturbation joke on a sick masturbation yeah. faking orgasms and that it wasn't just treated as like just a joke or just shame but it actually was coupled with like some admission of like yeah this is the way the world works like that was a, that was a new thing it was, it was hypothesis okay the demographics of harry and sally and the people who created them as characters are actually the the like peak of women faking orgasms because before <laughs> them <laughs> okay all right like okay before them, she didn't need to fake it because he had zero fucks to give about whether she orgasmed. He didn't tie it up in his ego or in his sense of his own performance. A guy. A guy, a guy did. Yeah, did. the guy did not okay. care yeah, yeah, whether she orgasmed. Right, right, right. Yep, yep, yep. After the boomers, we started mm. to get Post-sexual enough, revolution. like, clarity about the joy of about sex. what sex is and how it works and like yeah. what communication is that we stopped faking them unless absolutely necessary because we didn't need to like preserve his ego and what we needed was to get off so we needed to teach him how to make sure we got off but the boomers were in this terrible little bridge moment where yeah. he wanted to make you come but he didn't know how and you needed to keep protect him from his own self. And so the fastest, easiest way to just move on with the situation was to fake it. That makes sense to me. To get it over with. I have a video clip right. if you guys are interested. <laughs> After, like with that setup, I am very interested what the video clip is. All right. So what I'm seeing now, this is Joshua naked on a bed <laughs> with a woman. I think it's 1993. <laughs> Uh, can you guys see this in the shared yeah. screen? Um, it looks like yes. uh, Billy Crystal and a Muppet. Let <laughs> me put new words in your vocabulary, okay? I'm full. This whole oh, sentence. oh, it no, is I Billy Crystal and a Muppet. More Piggy and Billy Crystal at Cat's Deli. <laughs> or a deli <laughs> like it. So, Casanova, what happened with your hot date last night? Oh, Spell, it was a disaster. She canceled. She had a bad cold. Are you sure she had a cold? Yes, I'm sure she had a cold. Oh my god. I heard a sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> hurry, hurry, hurry. Your naivete is très amusement. Did you ever think she may have faked the sneeze to get out of the date with you? Fake the sneeze? Uh, yes, uh, yes. No way. Oh, listen, Harry. Take it from moi. Most women at one time or another have faked a sneeze to get out of a date. Really? Well, excusez-moi, miss. I'm jealous of babe. You don't think that I can tell the difference between a real sneeze and a fake sneeze? Nope. Get out of here. Oh. 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 
commitment. <laughs> Wait up. All have what she's having. Only less pepper. What? <laughs> what was that from? Wow. So apparently women fake their sneezes too. We weren't doing any commenting because we were all just riveted. And I, I was like trying to respond but i was how, just how over the top she goes in this in this fake sneeze yeah yeah I, I could, I, she commits so hard i love whoever's doing miss piggy's voice i love when the muppets are for children oh, yeah. i love when the muppets that's are for their adults. secret recipe right uh, it's that's it that's it right there also it miss miss piggy really can well. kind of do no wrong too i feel like people would just follow her wherever she goes i mean she's a great <laughs> character as you see in that because he yeah. starts off being the kind of jerk that he yeah, is. Yeah, that's the, that was a little. Uh... Yeah, at first, but then but then she flips it so quickly that you remember that like, oh yeah, Miss Piggy's not taking this shit. Like, come on, and like, you're like Harry probably yeah. would say something like that to Meg. Yeah, Ryan. and she's not <laughs> tolerating any of it. <laughs> Man, what if they just remade the movie with Miss Piggy instead of Meg Ryan? Would you like it then, Heather? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> because Miss Piggy has a point of view. Isn't it Starting out today, a citizen of France. Isn't it romantic? In the month of May to sew a pair of pants. My business is a honey, goods on every shelf. But since we're talking about actors, I have another movie thing because I just really want to tell Heather this. It's really weird. The casting that almost happened to this movie is very freaky and strange. I'll start with the normal ones. Uh, Albert Brooks turned it down because he said it was too much like a Woody Allen movie. Uh, Michael I'm so glad <laughs> that's rich coming from him. I'm yes, that's true. That's a I mean, great yeah. fucking point. That's a great <laughs> fucking point, and I'm so glad. Is there another direction he could yeah. go in? He's like, oh, I'm going to make action movies now. All he can do is be a Woody Allen. Yeah, I'm so glad it wasn't him. I so w- apparently, these two guys got everyone pitched their movie to both Michael Keaton and Tom Hanks for a time. It was like late '80s, early '90s. There was only them, and then Hanks becomes the like juggernaut oscar dude and it was either going to be michael keaton or tom hanks who i can see maybe working in this movie so that's the normal part here's the weird part um do you remember susan day they wanted susan day she goes on to la law oh my god do i remember so, susan day susan day was one of the yes, fantastic yeah. role models that we received on la yes, law she goes on to do <laughs> that's true yeah, yeah do you yeah. know who was gonna be sally here's the fucked up part and had a scheduling conflict molly ringwald and oh, they had that. already yeah. cast Billy Crystal. Could you imagine if you had to watch? Are you talking about my Molly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I every, mean, everyone your age is Molly. Yes, it's a little <laughs> unfortunate for her. She probably could have really used this role. Could you imagine though? How old was she in 1989? I don't know. And how then old, yeah. Billy Crystal, who was 41 when he was making this, and it would be like about a guy who tries to date his daughter. I am so it would glad be weird. that she had a scheduling conflict. I disagree with you, Joshua. This would not have helped her. Well, okay. Well, nothing else did either. So, like, maybe this would true. have. Like, I mean, true, true, she, true. she needed an adult role. Maybe because hottest take, I never got the Molly Ringwald thing. I didn't want to bust Tether's bubble and Pretty in Pink. Didn't get the Molly Ringwald thing, but spent my childhood pining for a blonde dumbass. Wait, you're talking about Meg Ryan? Oh, no, no, no. That is different. Yeah. That is very different. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> she goes to bookstores and she's a journalist. She goes to bookstores and only stands in the self-help section. That is funny. There's a lot of self-help <laughs> books there. And then he's looking at her from a personal... Oh, personal uh, growth. Personal, yeah, growth. personal growth. Which is like a subsection of yeah, the right. giant like, self-help yeah, book. Yeah. 
at Shakespeare that's Company, not, by the way. Right, yeah. That's not even why I brought this up. The reason I brought this up is Meg Ryan had to pass up a big role to be in this and open the door for Julia Roberts and Steel Magnolia. Meg Ryan was going to be in it, and they said, you have to pick between these. And she chose when Harry met Sally, opened the door, and Julia Roberts got to be Shelby in Steel Magnolias. Worked out good for both of them. That did not only work out well for Meg and Julia, it also worked out very well for both of the movies. Like, Meg would have done a terrible job of Steel Magnolias compared to how Julia does Can you imagine her trying to do a Southern accent? Mom. I'm not into that. I cannot. I, well, I want to just explain. I'm not a huge Meg Ryan fan. I'm a huge Sally Albright fan. Well, I was Uh very, I was a very big Meg, I was a big Meg Ryan fan for whatever those, that five, ten year period was. Very, very big. I I can get totally behind using Meg Ryan as hair swipe to bring to your hairdresser. (laughs) Her hair is wild. I don't know what's going on. They could do the feathered thing in the 70s. No, her hair's awesome. Which one? Which Her hair's fantastic. Her hair her The all, perm? All of them. All of them. That like that's actually one all of them. Yes. That's actually one of the Let's go through them for the listeners. We got 70s. Okay, so it start it starts out with uh, a kind of like loose uh Farrah Fawcett. Farrah yeah. Fawcett feathered yeah. the feathered yeah. um in 1977 in Chicago. And I'm going to miss some of them because there are a lot of them. There's there's also... There's a wavy phase. Well, well, I think the one that comes immediately after the feathering is when she's landed her job and she wears a Susan Day L.A. lawsuit and they bump mm, into right. Billy yeah. Crystal at the airport yeah. when she's still with Joe and she has a blowout. Yes. Her hair is like straight. Oh, Yeah. And it's 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 very it's one. very like Vidal Sassoon uh, like Bob, <laughs> and then um and then later she like we we come like a little deeper into the eighties and uh and it's it's sort of like a beachy wave mm-hmm. and it's more dirty blonde right yeah I guess a little darker is, is that it, yeah that's she true. gets it's like a little darker, darker. um and then when we hit like the not it's not the last hairstyle she has in the movie but it, it's the one she has in in sort of like the biggest deal scenes before the end of the movie you know like some of the most memorable scenes the sex the sexy floppy yeah crazy yeah hair. that's cute the, we get we get like a much more relaxed uh kind of like naturalism to the hair but but the bangs are still big. but it's big her hair, her hair is big the i head, didn't know her hair can get that big bigger the hair the closer to god matt <laughs> i know that's some late that's some late 80s big hair but then the perm was the one i was like that's the one that looks dated and then the perm comes in and that they when she gets the perm her bangs also get permed which is just so lovely it's You're into the it's perm? actually a really fantastic device it helps you to see time passing. It helps you to see her as a person who isn't like stuck. She's not calcified. She's like trying to, you know, become her new self and like grow into these forms of adulthood. I, I actually think it's one of the one of the best things about uh, the characterization of her that's purely visual. Sounds like you're falling in love no, with her. No, not her. <laughs> the fucking I hair and makeup artist. Tried to slip that Same in. Same thing there. happens with the makeup. When she's in Farrah Fawcett mode, we get like a light blue eyeshadow that goes all the way up to the eyebrows. Oh man, that blue eyeshadow is intense. And then we get like <laughs> later things get a little more naturalistic, which is actually something yeah. about the movie that I think is like kind of prescient. It's it's except like, for when they glue some sideburns on Billy Crystal and he just looks very weird as a college guy. Yeah, well that's true. He looks I fine mean, the rest of the movie, but him 
in the in the first scene when it's supposed to be the seventies, and he's a forty-one year old college student. That looks that looks weird. Billy Crystal's a bit of a butterface in this movie. <laughs> a bit of a butterface. Yeah, he looks. He looks. He like from the shoulders down, he looks pretty good. I guess he's strangely got some muscles. Yeah. Emily was watching it, and she's like, "He's such a strange, weird-looking man." <laughs> Emily's right. He is a strange, weird-looking man, it's, and not one that anyone in their right mind would be like. There's a handsome man. So you think no way he pulled off the romantic lead at all? Oh, for, you. for God's sake, no way! <laughs> Absolutely not. He does for me in this movie. I think that he, he's he's. I normally am not much I love of Bill- Joshua's honesty. I don't really I like it. Billy Crystal much um, throughout his career. I don't find his comedy very funny. I don't like very much that he's done. Wait, you were never an Oscar host fan of Billy Crystal. I, I used to love that as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he was better at it than some people. Yeah, no, he's, he was he's so definitely was better Oscars. at it than some people. He's he's definitely a, a song and dance man. He's a Hollywood type like that. It's not really my thing. But I think that he's pretty good in this. I think, you know, there's a couple times where I'm like, okay, Billy Crystal improving is a little, you know, perp paprika the pepper crash whatever this is a little like okay you guys gave him a lot of mm-hmm. lot of uh do it again Joshua. room here i don't remember <laughs> what he says what does he say can i have some pecan pepper, pie gosh in my i don't remember what he says <laughs> but but for the most part i i think he does a really good job in this movie and i and i i like him in it despite the bad toupee that they make him wear in the first scene despite <laughs> i don't know i think i think he's i think he's likable i think he's yeah. great in it i think he fires on all i think he yeah. takes all his skill set and and is able to be as billy crystal as he can and then there's no other good movies for him to be in and that's it like he got lucky with this one i think the moments when he needs to be tender i 100 percent buy it like i there's several scenes in the movie where i'm i'm actually moved Sounds like you're in love with Harry too. Yeah, no, I do like Harry. Like, like I think I think that yeah. his bullying is something I recognize. I remember, you know, the, that that being a knee jerk way that you thought a girl was attractive was to to be like. Yeah, you tease them. They, yeah, I guess bullying makes it sound mean worse. and and kind of a bully. And that's what he's doing at the beginning. And I think it's apparent that he like likes her immediately, and he doesn't know how to deal with that. And then when he has these moments where he switches and like and and is tender and admits it, that last scene, they they're right in that last scene for her to say, "Get the f out of here!" Like, no, like this is wrong. Like, what you're trying to do is wrong. And then I, I am suddenly, even though I'm I'm agreeing with her, and I think what he's doing is wrong. It's convincing. I am so affected by the way he delivers the line about how much he cares about her. That I was very moved. I was like, suddenly I've got a tear. Like I'm, I'm like, yeah, this is this. Is. Yeah, I think he pulls off the big, the big end speech. I, there's several times where he has to deliver a sensitive moment, and I completely think that he does it. The smile you were smiling, you were smiling then, but I can't remember. Can we talk about how, and maybe this is going to segue into Heather's song pick. Can we talk about how that big end speech completely uses the same song as It's a Wonderful Life? Which, of course, everybody making this movie knows that that, that It's a Wonderful Life ends with all, all how do you say that, yes. that song title? All Lang Syne? All Lang Syne. Okay. All Lang Syne. I don't know. I've never said it out loud. With an I don't S, think. not a Z. All Syne. Lang, all Lang Syne. 
which is the end of It's a Wonderful Life, is one of the most iconic movie endings of all time. And then this movie completely rips that off. I'm not really criticizing the movie for that, but it is sort of interesting considering yeah. they know they're doing it. They know that like they're borrowing like one of the most famous movie endings of all time. I wonder, so you know the original ending was supposed to be that they stay friends and they don't fall in love and then... Oh my God, it's a pretty yeah. pink moment. It was, but here's what happened. Rob Reiner fell in love during the making of the movie and realized that, yeah, realized that I don't that I'm the divorce is no longer the defining characteristic of me. I am now in love and I feel like that should be part of the movie. And I'm glad. I'm glad he fell in love. I'm glad the movie ended that way. I liked it. Him and Efron were like in real life, they were like, We've known these situations and they were joking. They're like, This would never happen in real life. And then he's like the married thing, and he's like, and commercially, he's like, you know, it's the it's the move. But the reason I brought that up and then we'll talk about old lang syne is i was wondering when you talked about the ripoff i just thought of this of it's a wonderful life if they were gonna go rip off casablanca well, yeah because they, they're not together in the end yeah. and they weren't supposed to be so i wonder no. if that was signaling nora efron's real ending knowing her it probably was and then they were gonna re rip off that Hmm. Oh, that it would have ended with a casablanca type ending yeah, we'll always have paris the beginning of a beautiful friendship Oh, yeah. And the friendship yeah. line, too. Yeah. Because the idea was when you have your biggest breakup and then get to your next successful relationship, the friend in between that got you through that. And then they were going to actually say, yes, men and women can be friends. But then they ruined the whole thesis or quest <laughs> right. of the movie yeah, yeah, yeah. because they do the Hollywood ending and Rob Reiner fell in love. So then it makes no sense that they get together after they set up everything perfectly for men and right. women. Being Except friends. it's fun. Why, which is why we need Jerry and Elaine. Yes. Yeah, because that's because true. they yeah. really do live the we're just friends. Yeah. They uh, only get there. No, they only get there by being together and fucking it up. But they they definitely say repeatedly throughout the series to people who are only now trying to make sense of their relationship or don't know this history. Like, yeah, no, we're truly just friends. Yeah. But we they have, hook up during the series. They have a sex episode, but they get through it. They they're do. like. They're very matter of no, fact. They do, about they it. do get through it because they realize it's a bad idea, but they are still attracted to each other. When they're like this, but not this, and they try it, and then they're yeah. like, okay, this is weird. Yeah. There's a really hilarious scene where Kramer, they're arguing, and Kramer is like, don't you guys get it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're in love yeah. with each other. Yeah. And then they both like roll their eyes yeah. and they're like, ew, gross. And then they just go back to it and they totally make fun of the yeah. Harry Mitzel. <laughs> that you're in love with each other. I mean, why can't you face that already? You're running around out there looking for something that's not even there when everything that you dream of is right here, right here in front of you. Now, why can't you admit that? Anyway, the end of the movie. The end of the movie. And old Lang Syne. I don't really get this song. I, I love It's a Wonderful Life, so I love the song, and I cry. Uh, every year, is it when an I old drinking it. song? What but is I it, don't really Heather? get like what what the fuck is this old is, Lang Syne? This is why I picked this song is because I think that the vast majority of Americans feel that way. They're like, I'm supposed to know this song. Did I, everybody know it in the old days? I know the melody. I know it's the New Year's song. Mm -hmm. I I like know that it's got this weird title that's like you know <laughs> um but i don't actually know what the song is i don't know what it means i don't know where it comes from no one knows more than like four words of no the i could right. never sing <laughs> right, it along right. how does everybody always sing it along on new you year's know, may like, all the, the acquaintance and then you're yeah. done so i i wanted to 
this is this is service journalism here. I wanted Thank to. Thank you. I wanted serve to, me. I wanted to find out. <laughs> okay, fun, like what? Once and for all, let's let's just take a look at it. What what is this song? What is going on here? I had no idea that this song is essentially the work of Robert Burns. Do you guys know who Robert Burns is? Poet. Yes. Okay, he's like, he's I know like, the name. He's like the national poet of Scotland. Okay. Um, most prolific in the late 18th century, and everybody in Scotland knows who he is. He's like the 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 shining star of their national arts and letters. They even like have like a nickname for him, which is Rabbi Burns. Like he's 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 a whole cult figure, right? I knew about him from this tradition of of like scottish poetry that like made its way through the scots irish into like west virginian school curriculums okay where where you were like supposed to know about the poets of ireland and scotland um and he he has this one poem that that has these lines that have like stuck with me since I was a small child being taught them in like the first version of West Virginia studies, which is my heart is not here. My heart's in the highlands. And we were, we were like taught this poem as, as though it were a, a, like a, a melancholic ballad about how you will feel. Should you ever leave West Virginia? So the highlands were West Virginia. Yeah, okay. even though in Robert Burns's world <laughs> yeah. they were the Scottish right. Highlands hundreds sure. of years ago, right? Um, but yeah, so he, it was a it was a kind of traditional uh, oral tradition folk ballad that he collected, like Alan Lomax style, basically, and and uh, and pulled forward and put down on the page and made famous. And so the title "Auld Lang Syne" is. Scots English for old long since. And you can hear that. Like if you look at the title, if you look at the words and you say them back and forth, you can like you can hear the the English words in them. Um hmm. okay. anyway, it's it it's had this same melody since the 1700s. Uh there are singable versions of the lyrics that are that like keep the Scottish to the bare minimum. Um but it's basically just a song about like if we forget about the people that we've right. known forever, like what becomes of us then. And so mm. in in uh in Scotland and in many parts of the UK there, uh, it's it's also a song that appears at funerals or at any any sort of like marking of like a milestone or passage of time. In the U.S., it's just become our New Year's song, um, and I I like kind of love this song. I've always kind of loved yeah, this song. I'm a fan as well. Yeah, it's like. But I love the old standards. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There's and this is an about, old standard. There's something about the melody of it that's. It's contagious it's to me. So it makes you feel like yeah, you really, put your arm around someone yes. and are drunk and you sway with them and yes. everyone's singing it together. That's the thing is the song so deeply feels uh-huh. like what it yeah. is that, that I actually never knew Sounds actually like, what it was. Like, it's just sort of like. It sounds like a bunch of Scottish people drunk at a bar screaming the song. It sounds yeah. like, you know, yeah. your arm draped over somebody and like and and yeah. and I cry at the end of It's a Wonderful Life because I get how the song means in that moment, but I don't actually know the song or get the song. And I think that like that's because that. it 
it took literally hundreds of years to evolve and be like refined and shaped by people who were explicitly trying mm. to create that feeling through like an oral ballad tradition and it it slays it totally does all the things it sets out there's a do. great mariah carey version that gets my daughter amped wow she does a countdown and then a beat kicks in yeah. and it's like oh the quaint dance and she like does this crazy and wow thinks it's so funny and loves it we might have to might have to give a little taste to the listeners i'm sure that will happen Heather, you mentioned uh, during uh, Meg Ryan's blowout, you mentioned her boyfriend, Joe. Joe. Do you guys know who Joe is? He, you know, he looked really familiar to me, So, and I didn't look him up, no. so I'm eager, eager to hear. You will never guess who this actor is. I could, I could not possibly begin. And the subject of our quiz. The sh- subject of a ridiculous random quiz I put together for you guys. He, His name is Stephen Ford because he is the son of President Gerald Ford <laughs> and Betty and Betty Ford. <laughs> Are you being serious right now? Wow. Yes. And another self made man. And yeah, this movie is the (laughs) the, the club. This is the this is the the Are Your Parents Famous Club getting this movie. Um so Joe, blonde guy who's supposed to be like, was he a lawyer or something that Sally's dating? He is Gerald Ford and Betty Ford's son. And he was on the young and the restless throughout the 80s. Oh, that makes sense. He was yeah. also in a ton of huge movies, but never had close to a leading part, but would get speaking roles and small parts in really big movies. So I put a little quiz together for you guys that no one will be able to answer or get. And I'm going to give you a multiple choice and name some movies. And you have to tell me the one he was not in. That's how many classics he's been in. And I got three categories. Now, let me let me ask you, um, be, because because the scoring was um, so problematic and yes, we have to go. I this. won, even though I actually should not <laughs> yes. have won. Are we going to continue to let me win? Because if so, I love it. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up, Joshua. There was a, an egregious mistake made during the Footloose episode where. We were tallying the points and I mean, I'll tell you what, we, we yes. almost got canceled on social media over it. We, we thought you guys were tied in the end, but when I re-listened to it and looked at the notes, Heather was ahead by one point and had one question correct. <laughs> I forgot which one. It was the uh, accents in Footloose or where people are from in Footloose. Right. And we declared you both the winners. That is wrong. I have to take your medal away and give you a silver and Heather has a gold now. Good luck. Good luck getting it. Send the FBI, bitch. So- <laughs> <laughs> I ain't turning it over. Topical. <laughs> so... I broke this down to three questions with three categories. Okay. Here are the categories of the Stephen Ford filmography quiz. Number one is the 90s. Number two are blockbusters. And number three, I'm just calling wild card because it's some random ass movies. Oh, his first movie should have been Grease, but he said he got too scared in stage fright and they cast Lorenzo Lamas instead. This is another weird Stephen Ford's fun track. All right. Question number one. 
the 90s. I'm going to name three movies, and you have to guess which one he was not in. Okay. Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, Legends of the Fall, or Contact that Jody. He was not in Contact. I think he might have been in Contact. (laughs) Um, Oh, Heather. With the Stephen Ford knowledge? <laughs> well, well, I saw Contact pretty recently with my kid because they have like gotten kind of interested. Whatever. I, I don't think it's Contact. Um, what was it? What was it? Heat and what was the middle one? Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall. I'm gonna go with Legends of the Fall. Heather is correct. He was. He was in Heat. Somehow he was in Heat. <laughs> yeah, so oh my god! So we're he was tied in right Heat now, and right? he was in Contact. So we're tied. All right. So <laughs> was he an alien in contact? No. Is that why I didn't I recognize know. him? Heather knows. No, I think he might. I don't, I don't know for sure, but he's th- probably a, one of the jerks at NASA. Yeah. who was like, uh-huh. a woman can't do this. Yep. And they're like, Oh, it's Joe from Harry Sally. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Number two blockbusters. He was not in one of these movies. Armageddon independence day. Or Transformers. Oh shit! He was Armageddon. Mm. Um, he That's was just a guess based on the other movies. He we now was know not. He oh really? You're <laughs> guessing at Stephen Ford's movie career? You don't, you don't know it. <laughs> he was not in Transformers. And the answer is he was not in Independence Day. Oh, <laughs> you're both wrong. Oh, Transformers was his <laughs> final performance. According, yeah. I looked it up. Wikipedia says Transformers was his final performance. Jeez, did he die? No, he just you know, that's a pretty good. Uh, uh, he's got some pretty good credits though. Armageddon for a president's son. As we all, all right, know, so it was a fantastic film. The last one. Yeah. The last one is the wild card and I'm making it extra hard and there's going to be four choices and he's not in one of these four choices for the wild card category. I love how you guys are dedicated and, and take this seriously. This is great. And by the way, you Heather is up by one point. We're not going to mess it That's up. That's right. The best Joshua I mean, can do is tie. So Joshua, you can tie her. Sounds like fake news to me. Or, <laughs> <laughs> he was not in one of these movies. Black Hawk Down, You've Got Mail, Escape from New York, Starship Troopers. You've Got Mail. Oh, no. He was definitely because that's Nora Ephron. She's Yeah, but she's I'm guessing that like, we would know. That's we a would trick be... question, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just me playing like how does Matt construct I think, quizzes. I, I think he was not in Black Hawk Down. Okay. Are these your final answers? Yes. yes. He was not in You've Got Mail. Oh, God dang. <laughs> Test taking skills. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a really good trick because I thought someone was going to be like. That was a good. Well, it was for me who f- fails every test they've ever taken. So I thought Escape from New York. Everyone's going to be like, what the fuck? Why was he in Escape from New York? Well, he but he would have been pretty young for that, I guess. But I don't know. Let's just, this is weird to me because he's been in Heat and Contact. He's been in Armageddon Transformers. He's been in Escape from New York, Black Hawk Down and Star Trek Troopers. It, you I could have that, a worse IMDb than that. No, that's pretty good. I think that it's time for him to come on the show. Um, what's his name? <laughs> Stephen Ford? He's definitely got nothing better to do. If you are listening to this and you know Stephen Ford, uh, you know, make it happen. <laughs> yeah, it's an impressive list. And they probably didn't let him in the movie just because he was the president's son. I don't think anyone cared about Gerald Ford's son by then. I don't 
don't think that that would get you very far. I mean, if you're going into an audition and you're like, Gerald Ford was my dad, they'd just be like, do you know Squeaky From? <laughs> Is she the one that tried to kill him? I don't know. Don't all the movie stars used to go to the Betty Ford Clinic, though? It's not maybe like there, he's like the Walmart greeter at the Betty Ford Clinic, though. <laughs> he might be. He might be. <laughs> and he's like, hey, can you read the script? I, I, I got... Yeah, it's the Patrick Swayze <laughs> with um, songs. Poor, poor yeah, trying to, trying to pedal it all song. over the place. It worked out for him, just like this, just like working at the Betty Ford Clinic worked out for Stephen Ford. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the wrong business. I'm glad you guys uh, like to take my quizzes. But Heather is the champion two times in a row, dude. She's slaughtering you. Well, you know, uh, I'll just say that my lawyers have been looking at the numbers and, you know, there's different, <laughs> there's different, there's different versions. How you understand the numbers depends on a lot of Rudy. things. Rudy will get you off. At least delay. Uh, uh, Maybe yeah. he'll be on his show because he will go on any goddamn online oh internet. Oh my God. O-A-N. <laughs> Uh, that's so true what's the other news max like he will yeah. just go on anything There'll we could probably get rudy Twitter, i think we could get rudy no oh, totally if we're like we'll give you five minutes to plead your so case we'll say that we're doing like um what's that billy crystal uh movie about the yankees 61 about mm-hmm. roger maris going for we'll say we're, we're a podcast about soundtracks we're doing uh 61 about the yankees we need a real new yorker i think we just have to tell him like you can talk into a microphone <laughs> and he'll be like yeah and he's like, you're right. Saturday Night Fever is in the top five of all soundtracks. We'll be like, thank you, Rudy. We also have to tell him that Heather, that, that Heather is going to attach yeah. that microphone. <laughs> I know that reference. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, oh my he was God. on that. What that a will fucking sucker. <laughs> yeah. And then time But, oh, my dear... Our love is here to stay Together we Going on a long, long way There's a scene where Harry is at the Sharper Image with Sally and they're looking for a wedding present for Jess and Marie and they stumble upon a machine that they don't even know what to call because <laughs> the word karaoke would not even be familiar to them at the time. He even explains what it is. And too. he He's puts like, the tape in and he hits play and they sing Surrey with a fringe on top. You, they plays all the background and you sing because the, part, yeah. the audience wouldn't know either. It's just a it's a fun scene. It's a nice scene. He does. He does his little showy. Uh, top of the scene, which is uh, he sings it really big, and then he hands it over to Meg Ryan, and there's a funny scene where you realize that like she's like the worst singer in the world. It's funny. And I was interested in it because I like karaoke. So let's talk about karaoke a little bit. If you don't know the history, it's kind of interesting. Karaoke, the word karaoke is Japanese, and it means empty, empty orchestra. Ooh, I love... I love that. I love, love the right? Japanese. Empty orchestra, right? And it came this is from real service journalism, when, uh, a, yeah, when a singer, <laughs> when they had to provide backing tracks to a singer in the studio because the live musicians weren't there. Mm. Basically, mm-hmm. the story of karaoke is also 
the story of technology. Like it's like as technology improved, karaoke improves too. So it starts with some guy who's like hired to is a Japanese guy whose job it is to play standards, basically, while businessmen entertain their host. And he's going to play the songs and the businessmen will sing along. And his name is Dasuki Ano. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's how it's spelled. And while he's doing this, he's so booked that he's like, I have bookings every night. I can't be everywhere. So I will pre-record some of the music and I will give it to the bar to play for the businessmen to sing along. And it was very successful. So he's like, oh, I'll develop this machine that does that. Oh, my God. He's like the Ted Turner of karaoke. <laughs> he absolutely is. The only difference is, unlike Ted Turner, he did not patent it. Oh, no. So he invented it, but he didn't patent it. And it's a guy from the Philippines oh, that man. ends up patenting it. And is he's yeah. the not Roy Kroc of McDonald's. Yes. And, uh, you know, he did win in 2004. He was awarded the Ig Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, you don't know about the Ig Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> I didn't either. But it is a, a prize for like uh, that they gave him for providing an entirely new way for people to learn to tolerate each other. That's so true. It, yeah, right. It, that is <laughs> really a spot on. Right. And the fact that it came from the Japanese culture and, and then it quickly went to, to China and Korea and stuff because it's very important in their culture that you entertain clients in a certain way. It's not going out golfing, you know, and like and like just shooting the shit and stuff. It's it's very much a culture of you entertain your clients. It's performative. You take yeah. them somewhere. Mm -hmm. You buy these beers. You get drunk together. You do these things in a very important way. And so being able to sing songs together was a big part of that culture. And as the technology improves, it continues to improve. It becomes eight tracks lead to a new invention of the karaoke. Cassette tapes lead to a new invention of the karaoke machine. And I think that what's important for the movie is that's why it appears in the sharper image uh -huh. room. Yeah. Is because it was cutting edge technology. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's this idea that like, wait, 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 wait. It's a song, but the singer's not on it? What? And I can sing along to the lyrics that I have here? So it was very cool with Sharper Image. Yeah. Oh, yes. In fact, like... When, oh, God. Sharper Image. When we were watching the movie, we paused on the Sharper Image scene a number of times to observe all of the things in that room. <laughs> oh, man. I, as a kid, I used to think it was so cool. But it would be like a wind-up electric putter thing oh. that would put golf balls by itself or it would just be like I nonsense. remember getting the catalog and they had advertised a telephone that had a little video screen yes. on it and I remember thinking I if I had this I could see my grandma Aww. when I talked to her on the Joshua. phone and you know what if I could do that I would never use a regular phone again <laughs> Fast forward all these years later, you couldn't pay me to pick up a FaceTime call. People FaceTime, I mean, and I'm like, if oh, one of you guys God. calls me on FaceTime. Yeah. I know, I know two things. I know this must be an emergency because Heather or Matt would never call me on FaceTime. Number two, I'm gonna let it go to the message because I ain't fucking answering. <laughs> or this. you just assume it was never. like an accident, you know, and you get the accidental yeah, it would be like, like a Rudy Giuliani butt call. 
<laughs> or it might be Rudy Giuliani. So You're like, I thought I was so going to be on the show. Calls. <laughs> In the legacy of karaoke, um, it is now credited as being the first audio streaming service because it's the first time that people actually went online to get songs. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's actually to like a thing songs. that has. Yeah moved culture in pretty significant ways um, and moved the way we listen to music and how we do music in, in interesting ways. And um, and now we have James Corden. Carpool karaoke. And American Idol. And these things are actually credited to the idea of, of karaoke plays a role in, in that whole thing too, is the idea that you can be a yeah, star. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, um, I'll, I'll finish by saying that I would like to know what your Juhachiban is. Oh, what is a juhachiban? <laughs> I, have, I think we can figure it out from context clues. A juhachiban <laughs> is the one song which you are uh, especially good at. Oh. I have two. One is okay. in West Virginia. One is not. Uh, John Denver. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're so you, dedicated to the. It's a great song. The no, it's a great song. No, no, no. It's not that I'm dedicated. It's that like somebody at every karaoke session that ever takes place in any context in West Virginia has to do it, and then everyone else in the room goes goes in. So if I was in West Virginia and somebody starts singing that song, oh it, my God, I'd be so moved. It doesn't matter. I've never yeah. once been to karaoke. Oh, God, I would just be like... I've never once been to karaoke in West Virginia where it, it, it didn't come up. Like, it's like a rule. But I would also never choose it outside of West Virginia. What I choose every time outside of West Virginia is Sweet Child of Mine. That's a good one. Mm, that's pretty aggressive. I mean, take it on Axl Rose. Here is why I choose it. I think the best version of karaoke is someone who's game I and agree. like willing yeah. to laugh yeah. but and not willing that good. to play. Not that great yeah, at it. Do you do the Axel voice? Do you? Do, yeah, of do you, course you do yeah. the Axel voice. Yeah. That's actually good. you don't want to try to make it your own. Yeah, yeah, you see these people that like do like a Nirvana song or whatever, and they're and they're like. Uh, you know, rape me. <laughs> and you're like, dude, what are you fuck are you doing? <laughs> I don't I don't do karaoke, but I would assume if there is a gun put to my head and I had to entertain some clients, um, I would probably just go for like a funny nineties one that is like that's a good call kind of funny but people secretly like like what's going on or something oh that's a huge carry what what's going on happens every night there's karaoke oh is it oh yeah for sure right. Cause, so because because right, you're right, right that's right exactly what that's people want one. i feel like that's what you do yeah yeah what about you joshua i end up doing johnny cash mostly Aww. uh because the the issue is that by the time I get up on stage, I've uh, you know I've had a couple beers and I've been talking loudly because I you know I can't hear very well apparently according to the audiologists so I'm yelling <laughs> and my voice is ruined and so I can't do Merle Haggard or I can't do any of those good things and mm. so I, I just have to do the deep <laughs> the token deep so I end up doing Jackson uh huh that's a or good something one. like that yeah 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 that, and I wish I have fantasies. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll admit to you my 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 biggest karaoke fantasy, but it would take so much work that it'll never happen, unfortunately, because I'm too lazy. My biggest karaoke fantasy is that I would learn all of the actual words to Gangnam Style. Oh, you can do that. I mean, yeah, you could absolutely do that. And that I would just just one day just sneak into a karaoke in a public <laughs> space 
and take the stage and everybody would see what song because it says it up there on the screen and everybody would laugh because what it what a dumb white and you wouldn't guy. even have to look at the words uh, and then, and then like it would kick go. in and i would nail it that's that's a dream i have can you make that dream yeah. a reality no, no that's a dream i have that's a good dream and we'll play we'll play, a, we'll play a clip of it on the show yeah let's get a kickstarter going <laughs> I think we know where we're going with this. The big question, is this the perfect movie soundtrack? Not only is it not the perfect movie soundtrack, it's not really a soundtrack at all. It was a promising beginning. (laughs) Yeah. It's very hard to know what to make of this soundtrack at all, to the point that I yes, I don't even know if it's a soundtrack. I don't know. Well, one of the questions we ask is, does the movie need the soundtrack? Apparently not, because The movie definitely does not need the soundtrack. <laughs> the movie has Obviously, no because the soundtrack is not in the movie. The soundtrack's not in the movie. Yeah, yeah I have no yeah. idea what to make of that. And the soundtrack yeah. album, uh, I guess it... It's good. It, it is I guess good. it did need the movie in the sense that like Well, sure. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it needed as a platform, but as yeah. like a project or a piece of art. They Harry Connick Jr. might have been able to release this. No. To some He was so he was actually a New York guy at the time. He left. He went to Hunter. He went to Hunter, was at Manhattan School of Music and was at all the cool jazz clubs being a cool New York guy and became a thing and had some like instrumental album and then one where he sang some standards needed this movie yeah well it launched of course a giant hollywood movie directed by rob reiner but i wonder if yeah you're probably right he probably he might have got a following but he probably could never get the two million copies in a grammy anyway it's nowhere close to the perfect movie soundtrack the music uh is, is it fits into the movie really well like you don't even notice it but, yeah, it's uh, the right for, it's the right music, but yeah, for our purposes, it's like if you don't notice the music, I feel like that's kind of an issue. I guess, but I mean, if it was a punk soundtrack, you'd be like, "Whoa, weird, weird choice." Well, sure, yeah, yeah. But I think you're right in that if I found ten or eleven other standards about romance or New York or relationships and put them into this movie, you might not notice. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't notice. Like instead of. Um, it had to be you, you know, you put in like, I don't know, only you or whatever. And you guys probably wouldn't, as long as it was a beautiful, sentimental, nostalgic, old jazzy standard that made you think. Yeah. If there was a Louis Armstrong, uh, what a wonderful world in the middle, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice. Like it wouldn't be. Yeah. That's a perfect example. You throw that one in there, put a different Gershwin song in there. You're, you're golden. All right. So. I think we knew we were going there. Thanks for talking about when Harry met Sally for me, guys. You're welcome. I'm glad you're thanking us. <laughs> if they asked me, I could write a book about the way you walk and whisper and look. I could write a preface on how. 
We've had some special episodes on here where we've like talked to other people or highlighted movies that we wouldn't maybe normally feature, but I decided I wanted to integrate that into one of our regular episodes a little bit. <laughs> and Oh, we're de- we're desegregating. Sure. I mean, I guess if, you know, uh, if you want to get Jerry Orbach in, um, <laughs> in uh, Dirty Dancing and turn it into a segregation issue out of nowhere. <laughs> okay. A friend of mine has this book coming out that he put together, this anthology that he edited and created and wrote in. His name is Joe Valisi. And yeah, it's an anthology on horror movies. It came from the closet. Queer Reflections on Horror. And I want to talk to him about the book. And I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to do that and to also, you know, serve our own purposes as well. And so I was like, hey, could we do a horror movie on this podcast? And it's actually a really interesting question that Heather alluded to in a previous episode because there's not a lot of horror movie soundtracks. So we were brainstorming about this and we came to the conclusion that really the only horror movie soundtrack worth doing was Scream. Nice. Oh. Give me the big soundtrack era of the 90s. I'm down. Yeah, that's great. He is going to come do the podcast with us. Awesome. And is going to talk about the book that he put together, and awesome. he's going to talk about the soundtrack together. But I've got a wrinkle for you, and you guys may hate me for this because it is kind of additional homework. Skeet Ulrich is coming on the show. As we were talking about this, he was uh, debating whether to do Scream or Scream 2 because Scream comes out as a very indie movie with a low budget and Scream 2 is when they threw the Mm -hmm. money at them. And he's like, Scream 2 actually has a pretty interesting soundtrack that is worth thinking about. And I said, you know what? We've never actually done this. Let's Let's look at this. Double down. So we're going to actually talk about both. We're going to talk about Scream and Scream 2, and we're going to awesome. think about what happened during the big soundtrack era when one movie was a hit and had a normal soundtrack, and then they were like, now we got to blow this next one out with a bigger soundtrack. Great so, idea. Fun. There I'm, you go. I've never seen Scream 2. <gasps> really? Matt, you have, you have, you, there are a lot of horror movies you have not seen. Yeah, I'm scared of them, so I don't watch them. I remember much. seeing Scream in a theater and loving it. I think it was really cool and, and clever. And then I don't know. Well, I haven't seen either of them since they came out. So I haven't I'm seen either of them interested. in a really long time. And I will tell you guys, uh, Joe is a freak about these movies. <laughs> so like, uh, prepare yourself. Oh, awesome. You might want to <laughs> study up. He's a screen okay. expert. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. That's what we're doing. I'm excited. Yeah. Ha- yeah. We're getting ready for Halloween. I guess I should have mentioned All that. All right. Awesome. Right. Happy Halloween. Who didn't make the rules? Police are always off track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Thanks for listening. We are entering the home stretch on season one of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack. Got about five more episodes for you. Some pretty fun stuff in the plans for some of those episodes. Check the show notes if you want to get a Spotify playlist with all the songs from the episode, as well as links to our Instagram and our Twitter. 
And we certainly hope that you will tell your friends, your loved ones, your family, whoever you think might be interested in our podcast. We love doing it and we'd love for more people to hear it as well. Thank you to those of you who have been listening. Hope you enjoyed it. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua. And we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack.